Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Ron Carucci. He's a managing partner and co-founder of Nevelin. Ron, welcome to the show. Kevin, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing is actually really innovative. And selfishly, I'm actually really quite fascinated to learn more about what you guys do. But maybe before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. I am a I am a textbook born and raised New York okay. Italian from nice. a large New York Italian family. Um, so you know, think Sopranos. <laughs> you guys watch it, think it's TV. For me, I watch The Sopranos. It's like Thanksgiving. That's hilarious. Uh, and so that's that's I'm the youngest of five. Okay. <clears throat> and uh, so all the cliches about those families are true. Uh, <laughs> most of the good ones. Um, sure. So yeah. That's uh, that's okay. where I hail from. Uh, Fourteen years ago, re- relocated to Seattle. Okay. Still, still adjusting to the culture shock. Sure. The the rain. <laughs> Is that the rain <laughs> and the culture shock? Sure. Sure. <laughs> I guess uh, I haven't been to to New York, but uh, I've been to Seattle. I I think it's a great town. But uh, but maybe before we continue on your your journey, you went to university. What did you take and why? So. Um, <laughs> Uh, n- nothing like what I'm doing now. Okay, uh, my sure. original, um, my original studies were in the arts. Okay. So I, I began my first part of my academic career at Juilliard studying, okay. um, music and theater. Very cool. Um, figured out that I needed to work, which you weren't allowed to do there. So I, I transferred down to NYU, um, and had a great time both being in school there in the same major and then also working because I needed to earn a living okay. doing that work. But then I quickly found out, um, very fortunately, um, before I was a senior, that uh, while I was getting all these great jobs and I was fortunate to, to be working, unlike many people in that business, I bored easily. So many of my friends would be saying things like, wow, what a great job. And I'd be thinking I have to do the same thing for eight times a week for how long? Yeah, and so I took a job. I left New York City. I took a job on on on, on the road, okay. touring, thinking that maybe more variety might fix that problem, but it didn't. Okay. Um, but then made the transition. Uh, I was in, living in Europe, uh, and uh, I was there for three years. And at one point, the company that I worked with, you know, had a contract with the U.S. military and State Department to do some training work. Okay. So we would use a variety of media, and uh, we were at um, Dachau. Uh, of all places, and in the chapel at okay. Dachau. Interesting. And um, you know, back in that in that time, they didn't have the term diversity and inclusion. But if they did, that's what this workshop would have been on. So you can okay. see many levels of irony of doing a workshop on that topic in a chapel at Dachau. Um, but that's what we did. And in, in the in the middle of that workshop, one of the young military um, members who was present, we had Germans and Americans and civilians and families and enlisted soldiers. There's a quite a mixed group. He stood up and he said, you know, I, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. Um, and I was so taken aback by first that something I had done up in front of the room could have made him think that. But then secondly, that he would actually get up and say it. Yeah, interesting. Um, and I was more fascinated by that. I think, Kevin, that was the beginning of realizing that for me, um, you know, telling great stories was interesting, but engaging other people in their stories, sure. that was moving. That would not bore me. Uh, engaging communities in their stories, organizations in the stories they're trying to craft for their future. Um, that was going to be different every day. And so I was never going to get bored doing that. So I think that was probably the beginning of the pivot of my career. Okay. So walk me through that pivot up until what you're doing today. Uh, so it's, yeah, not, not, I mean, it, it, isn't it funny how careers always sound great in retrospect? They sound perfectly logical and orderly. But, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> But that's not really what happens. Okay. So anyway, I came back to the United States, <clears throat> um, finished my finished my degree in communications, undergrad before before I left in Europe. Came back, found out there was a whole industry called organizational psychology. Okay. 
that did this kind of work. So I learned the language. I took an, uh, an entry level job uh, in training and OD in uh, a company. Okay. <clears throat> Got my master's degree in org behavior. Okay. And began my career. And mostly, I was moving inside corporations. Okay. But the thing I learned about being inside corporations, and I, you know, I've always had a passion for human endeavor and how humans came together to do things that individuals couldn't. I always loved that, and so I loved the idea of making that better. But part of the part of the job working inside companies is you have to tell the truth. You have to be able to be honest about where it's not working in order to be able to fix it. Sure. Well, I learned because I was never politically very savvy that sometimes they don't really want to hear the truth. Sure. And, you know, at that point in my career, I probably wasn't all that skilled in how I delivered it. And so I kept cl- – I collected these things called severance packages, which okay. my children loved because it meant that I got more time with them. Um, but it, I began to realize that if I was going <clears> to <throat> um, embody my passion for organizations, it was going to have to be by not being part of one. Okay. And that the be- what got me in trouble inside organizations and got me a larger collection of severance packages <laughs> got me paid really well outside organizations. And so I began to realize that the best way to do this work was from outside, that you know, ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land, and there's some truth to that. And so I began my career as an external consultant and started my own practice. But then I realized that I, you know, at that point in my career, I was in my mid-30s, and um, I, you know, I thought, I love this work, but I don't, I, don't have, I don't have everything I need to know to do my own thing for 30 more years. Okay. Um, there's way too much I don't know, and I don't want to be a jack-of-all-trades and master of none. I want to really learn how to do this at the best levels. Interesting. So I checked out my practice and sold it to uh, a, a wonderful consulting firm. It was sort of the in, – in my field, it was sort of the Rolls-Royce. It was the field – it was the consulting firm you wanted, you wanted to be at nice. if you wanted to do this work. And I was very fortunate to go there and was there for eight years. It was a marvelous experience. Um, learned a ton, met great people. But that, the owner of that firm, the founder, sold it to a much larger consulting firm. And, of course, when you become something part of much bigger, sure. it changes the work. Yeah. And I think right. a, uh, a couple of years after that happened, we all, a couple of us thought, you know, we love this work. It's still a passion. The craft means a lot to us. But doing it here <clears throat> isn't really as fun anymore. But we can still do it together and at the way we want to. So we, went, we left and started Avalon. Mm. Okay. And that was 14 years ago. Very cool. So what do you guys do now and how has it evolved since you started it 14 years ago? Because a lot of stuff has come and gone, right, and, and probably changed quite a bit. Or is it pretty similar? Kevin, it's such a, it's a, you, you're asking a raw nerve question. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, I mean, one of the things that's really painfully different about what we do is that when we all begin our careers, those of us who started the firm – you know, leadership and organizational work was a side dish. It was okay. not treated as a main discipline. It should have been, okay. uh, but it was being discovered, you know, uh, uh, back then. Sure. But in 15 years, the whole freaking world is doing it, right? Yeah, there are the playing field has become more cluttered and crowded with people claiming to be leadership and organizational experts of all kinds. Everybody's writing about culture. Everybody's a coach. Everybody's um, doing org design. Uh, and so, the problem is that I'm all trained in it. They, it's sort of a sh- hacky and sticky, and some of them are very, very good, which, which for us, what that means is we have to compete differently. We have to set ourselves apart differently. Okay. We have to be able to tell different stories when people are comparing us to 10 other people sure. uh, uh, that may be equally good or better or maybe, maybe they suck, but to the naked consumer, they all use the same language and use the same things. And so for us, the idea of really setting yourself apart by, by how you express your ideas, by how you talk about – the, the challenges you, your clients are facing by how you talk about the pattern library that you've seen, because we all have 30, 40 years of experience, versus some of them people we're being compared to have five years of experience. Sure. Or they have three years of experience 10 times. I got you. Um, and so, but that, but that requirement to have to do that and have to do it really, really well was never part of our requirement before. So only in the last four or five years has that really, in, really intensified for us. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it was, it's a new muscle we're still building, but it's hard. Mm. No, I, I 100% agree. It, it is quite, quite interesting. So I, I'm curious to know, though, what do you guys do now and what do you feel is your strong suit? Because we, we were talking a little bit earlier, and I want to get into that in a few seconds, but some of the stuff that you guys talk about and touch on is actually really quite innovative and fascinating. 
So what we have found, Kevin, is that you, you know, if you really want to – there's no two organizations and no two leaders alike. Sure. Right, so so many people who do this work—it's a one-size-fits-all. They have their stick, they have their yeah. approach, they slap it on, and that's not really how change happens. It's not really how life happens. Sure. So we 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 are constantly learning, and we have you know a database of 3,300 interviews. We've done lots of work, and we have the benefit of artificial intelligence to study the patterns we've seen, and to study across you know 15 years of work, sure. um, how organizations have changed, where they have failed, where they have struggled. And to call those patterns and insight into, into, into research. And so we've been able to articulate things and articulate patterns in leadership behavior to distinguish successful leaders from failed leaders, uh, to distinguish you know, effective organizations from ineffective ones. So I think our, di- our diagnostic methodology, which is really comprehensive and robust, we can do an MRI at an organization like nobody else. M- many people go in and do like a, a light X-ray diagnostic, but we can get deep under the hood so we can bring to the leaders hire us deep insights and deep perspectives about the organization that they would never have access to. And we can craft pathways for change. We, we understand, you know, many practitioners out there focus on the individual or they focus on a team or they focus on the system. Um, but if you want to change the stick, you have to do all three at the same time. You can't just isolate one from others. You can change everybody on a team, but if the individuals don't change, it doesn't stick. You can change the culture, but if you don't change the, lead, the way leaders think, the culture won't stick. You can change individual leaders, but if you don't change the culture, their behavior can't stick. So with, we, we call that language within, between, among. Change within leaders, change between them, and change among them. And we do all three really well, and I think that's what really sets us apart. Yeah, that is the one thing that I've sat at companies before where you have a yearly meeting and you talk about the, you know, like a whole team meeting and you talk about all the things that are going to change and, you know, they kind of maybe half implement them in the coming weeks and then it very much kind of goes back to how things were. And people get a little bit disappointed and maybe disgruntled and some people end up leaving. But so I'm curious, how do you actually implement that stuff that you guys do and actually get it to stick and, and work with the leadership to actually keep it going and, and continually be a work in progress? Because that's got to be probably the hardest part of your job. Do you agree? Kevin, it's a great question. It's only one of the hardest ones. And one of the things we never do is announce change at an offsite uh, because we, okay. we, all know the mountain, we all know the mountaintop experience. We all know the unkept promises. Um, and every organization we go into has a very large this too shall pass club Yeah, okay. uh, because they all, they've been trained to not take it seriously. They've all had it announced. They've all seen the, the T-shirts, and they all have the screensavers and the posters with the five <laughs> new values and the, the new campaign slogans. Sure. And they know it's going to die and fizzle out. Um, and so cha- transformation is a process, and it requires discipline and time. And so we don't sign up to announce change. We sign up to implement it. And okay. we construct a journey of six, nine, 12, 18 months of okay. hard work with measurement, Okay. with interventions and solutions and, and organizational work so that the change you, you design it can actually stick. I think many leaders – I don't think many leaders stand up in front of an offsite and think, how can I fool them today? How can yeah. I make them think I really want to change when I don't? I think they're, they're well-intended. They're just incredibly naive, and sometimes they're lazy about what it's actually going to take. Sure. And so they think they, – if they announce change, they just proclaimed it, things are going to happen. Well, for example – um, we all want more collaboration. Okay. You know, so we go off and do team building things and get everybody to rah-rah and get along better. And we do our Enneagram or our Myers-Briggs or our DISC instrument and talk about ourselves and get to know each other better and sprinkle a little collaboration best on people. And think that's going to really stick over. So now marketing and sales won't fight. Or now R&D and innovation will get along better and make better ideas and implement their, get their products to market. Right. But turns out when you get back to the real world – and the way you've set the goals between sales and marketing is so conflicting, or there's no governance structure that allows them to talk to each other, or the way you're managing your innovation pipeline doesn't include R&D. They don't even get to come to the meetings. You have all these systemic mechanisms in place that are causing them to fight, that are encouraging yeah. them to not get along. That it doesn't matter how much you talk about the importance of getting along. You've designed them. The only, the only thing they can do is fight, right? So if you're not willing to look at the things that are shaping the behavior you want to change, it's not going to change. 
Yeah. So we dig it all up. Okay. We don't we don't just sprinkle the collaboration pixie dust on people and teach them about themselves. We dig deep into the organization to find all the places where the behavior you want gone is being shaped and figure out how to change them to relationships and systems and organizations that actually shape the behavior you want. Sure, because I think part of the challenge is I think a lot of leaders don't understand how much effort and time and probably change they need to even do themselves is required before they might even start seeing other people in their company start buying in and changing. Do you agree with that? Uh, Kevin, you're speaking my language. It's like I, I, I hope the whole crowd of <laughs> listeners just yelled amen to that. Um, many leaders think that if I impose change, I'm off the hook. Mm-hmm. But I actually wrote a great, a really fun piece in HBR about this called "You Can't Change Your Organization if You If You as a Leader Can't Change with Them." Sure. So if you as a leader are struggling with the fact that, you know, we hear this all the time, decision making is too slow. We need to speed up decision making. So I got called once by a company saying, "Can you teach us how to be more entrepreneurial?" Uh, because we need faster decision making. Like, oh, okay, well, uh, why, why why do you want faster decision making? Because we're too slow. It takes too long to get things done. I said, why? Is it because people don't know how to make decisions? Let me come in and look. Turns out the numbers of approvals needed sure. for getting anything done, the, the, the governance design in place did not include the right people making the right decisions, and the, those who were making the decisions didn't have the authority or the resources to make them. Interesting. Um, and nobody had access to any information that they needed to make decisions. All the information was locked up in a secret. And at the top of the organization, you had a neurotic, micromanaging um, perfectionist who froze at every sign of risk. I see. So to your point, we had to start there. Because even if we changed all the other things in the system that would allow access to information and the right people at the right tables with the right authority and understanding how to make construct decisions with data and intuition and choice and, and execute those decisions, as long as that leader was at the top of the organization neurotically controlling them all, it was never going to get faster. Sure. So there you have within between a month. You had to do it all. Okay. Um, and a workshop on entrepreneurism was never part of a solution. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. F- fa- fair enough. And and you can probably tell already that I've been through some of the highs and lows of this. Um, in I, I, hear the, I hear the pain. Yes. I hear the pain. The, the, I call it jaded, but sure. <laughs> it's, it, you know what? But Kevin, but you, your, your cynicism is not unfounded, right? <laughs> We, we walk into battle when we, we get called. We typically, I mean, we're very blessed and grateful sure. when we get to be the first one at the bat sure. in our organization, but often we're not. Yeah. And we come behind, you know, uh, the sixth attempt, the seventh attempt. Sure. And so the battle fatigue we find, the cynicism we find, um, the This Too Shall Pass Club that we find is staunch. And so the fact that you woke up today and thought, okay, but this time I'm really serious, is interesting. But the 8,000 people you're asking to come on this journey don't believe you. Yeah, So now the change journey has now become extra complicated because it's not just the change journey that you're asking that we construct in our within-between-among way. It's how do we get over your history of failed change enough to convince them that this time actually will stick? Um, and almost all of our work is complicated and compounded sure. by the reality you're, you're talking about, which is – been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and it didn't work. Yeah. No, and I also think, too, at least in my past experiences with uh, what we're talking about, is it, it's really hard. Well, I, I think people just maybe give up, right? In the sense mm-hmm. of just like, I'm just going to do what I got to do, get my stuff done, uh, keep my head kind of above water, but not really poke the bear, right? And, and, and just maybe end up ultimately looking for a new job, right? I, I think that's what it comes down to for a lot of people. And it seems like... I think like... a lot of great talent does eventually decide. And, I, you know, I prefer that. I prefer really good talent quit and leave. Um, okay. Because, because you, 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 know, you know you're atrophying, right? You know in, ah, innately okay. by watching what's happening on you. You know, you got, you got one shot at the career. You get one 30-year journey to do your best work and leave your mark on the world and feel good about it. And why, why would you waste time marking time on a treadmill if the organization around you is not interested in growing? That's not nearly as bad as the people who quit and stay. Yeah. And sure. play okay. Candy Crush all day or you know, search LinkedIn or just collect the paycheck. Those are the people that wake up 10 years later depressed 
and uh, anxious and consuming too much alcohol when they realize they've wasted 10 years of their career on a conveyor belt in an organization that was never going anywhere. But it was convenient and it was easy and it paid the mortgage and it got me home at, by six for dinner. But now suddenly I'm about to turn 38 and realize what have I, what, what have I have to show for myself and how, and I can't do this forever. And I'm not really sure what I want to do next. So I'd rather have somebody, uh, as much as I can't stand how many people job hop today every three months, that's not helpful. But at some point, if you recognize the environment you're in is stagnating by intention um, and is not interested in your evolving and your ability to contribute and your ability to stretch and giving you opportunities to find your best work in life, don't stay. Okay. Um, life's too short. Your career is too short. And you're better than that. So how do you, though, get the – like because we've all been to a conference or something where – or you read an article or something and it, it's – you're like, I wish my boss or somebody would just – this is – like they need to read this article. Like how do you get the types of people that actually need to understand the change and the struggle that the employees are having – actually notice that they're the problem and, and and make and start getting them to change because I've seen it so many times where uh, and, and I think it comes to something we're going to talk about shortly is kind of just being honest with themselves their employees and everything around that so how do you work with a company that needs to just kind of accept that and the higher-ups need to accept that and actually get the employees to buy in that they're trying to change well, well, to your point, it starts with the people who are commissioning the change, right? You need to hold the mirror up to them first. And so that's, like I said before, our MRI of the organization is a forensically deep, comprehensive look at okay. what's really going on. And we bring leaders, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 pages of data. Wow. Um, okay. A story, and every word we hear gets coded in our database, in, into the data. Okay. You don't know who said it, but you know that it was said, and so we find all the, the patterns. So you hear a chorus of voices talking about your organization's story in a way you would never hear as okay. a senior leader. Okay. It's, it's difficult, it's painful, um, and it's raw, but it's honest. And now from that place where you can now see the full story in all its beauty and all its horror – uh, out in front of you with a set of leaders at the top who have the power and the authority and the, jo and the resources to actually make change. And so our work first begins by saying you need to look at the story and understand why it's the story. Okay. You, 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 it, some of it may not even be true, but it's what people are saying. And if they're saying it, it means they're making behavioral choices about it. So whether you believe it's true or not is not relevant. Interesting. Okay. The fact that this is the story the organization is telling themselves, even with its contradictions, is the story you have to start with before you can craft the next chapter. How many? I think many of the changes you're describing, Kevin, are changes that where somebody came in with this, you know, a new fad, the new thing du jour, and try to impose it on top of a, you know, a, a highly resistant organization that never, could, where it could never have thrived, and maybe it was even the wrong change. Interesting. Um, Sure. You know, we all like, we yeah. all see collaboration become a goal when when people are complaining about the compensation structure being too individualistic. We all see integrity become a goal when there's been a scandal. Yeah, we all see okay. diversity become a goal when there's been too many lawsuits. Right. Yeah, so yeah. Okay. You, you can't impose change that's only meant to correct your bad, your your past shortfalls. So when we put that story in front of leaders, we I now have your attention. Right. Yeah. I now have a place of saying, okay, this is the story. You're, the pen's in your hand to write the next chapter. But you've got to start from here. And we make them take responsibility. We spend a you know, day or two in a room with them with that information to say, you need to make, you need to make sense of a story, and you need to craft what could the next chapter be. Because you're not going to be committed to it unless you create it, and you're not going to create it unless you believe this is the story you're in today. Interesting. And you've got to get some pushback, though, on that sometimes, or, the, or people are usually open to change. Well, I think at that point, I, I, listen, I, I, I can't make this stuff up. Right? Yeah, you, okay, you, fair enough. Yeah. If you're bringing in 90 pages of data, you didn't make it up. <laughs> you, well, not only that, some of you in the room are the ones that said it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> like this, fair this enough. This came from you. Fair enough. And, yeah, okay. and 20 or 30 or 40 of what you put me in front of, your best leaders, the people you're counting on, this is their story. So if, you're, if it's on their backs, you need to craft the future, you better believe what's happening here. Um, and so it's, it's usually a very sobering and humble, humbling um, mirror to look in, but but rarely do we get people completely dismissive. It makes okay. them defensive at first. Sure, they bristle. Sure. We, we we have a whole we have a three page 
instruction manual that accompanies these reports for here's how you read this report. Okay. And how you manage your emotions and how you manage your defenses and where, where you know you're triggered. So we, we teach them how to read it and absorb it before they even come into the room to discuss it. Okay, interesting. No, that, that's fair. Uh, so I, I want to get into – you and I started talking quickly about it, um, about honesty. Mm. That – and you guys did a bunch of research around that. So do you want to talk about what you guys did and, and what you found around that and why that's so important? Well, I think – I mean we don't, you don't have to look to past any headlines today where there's you know, <laughs> one more leader – you know, in an organization and a sports team and politics, you know, misleading, mishandling, be- behaving immorally, doing something that we just that erodes our trust. Today, leaders start distrusted, right? Yeah. If people assume if you're in leadership, you're going to screw me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we have we have half the workforce checked out. We have half the workforce feeling like they have no sense of purpose. It's not a, it's a dismal place. So, um, you know, where, where this began for me was in one of those diagnostic interviews I was talking about okay. with you where the, the head of strategy for a $30 billion food company wow. um, talking about a failed merger. Okay. Uh, they had, they had paid, paid several billion dollars for this food company um, that they thought was, it was cutting edge. It was great. They could learn a lot from it. They would, you know. A- anyway, so it went south, and he's sitting there telling me, you know, if we're honest, notice the qualifier, right? If we're honest, yeah. we all knew it was going to we all knew it was going to fail. We didn't have the capabilities to to uh, merge with them. We we didn't have the guts to learn from them. We didn't have what it takes to make them successful, uh, and we all had a sense that it was going to fail. So then, why did they buy it? Did you ever cover? And Kevin, that? I'm sitting there taking these notes, thinking, why why can you tell me this now, but you couldn't tell each other? He said, we've lost our way in the food space, so now we're just grasping at straws. We don't know who we are anymore, so we're just making things up. Wow. And I thought, that's such the state of corporate America today. I'm like, okay. So these are, and, and these are good people. These are good people, men and women. These are not like sociopaths or like sure. hedge fund greedy whatevers, right? These are good, good people, and they're sure. smart people. Yep. So I'm like, okay, we've all known from behavioral science that dishonesty is not just a function of individual character choices, right? But the, the best our behavioral scientists have done so far is to say, well, it's the culture. Okay. Which is like, well, what, what does that mean? You know, what, what, what do you mean that the culture is promoted? So I wanted, we wanted to know. I wanted to understand what are the things that would predict whether or not someone will withhold or, or distort the truth in an organization? What could have led them to decide we're not going to talk – truthfully about what we all know is about to happen here. We're just going to go do it. Yeah, interesting. With our shareholders' money. Um, yeah. So we, we, we analyzed 3,300 interviews across a 15-year study to understand what, what are the correlations between. And turns out um, there, are, there were four predictors, and one of them was a lack of strategic clarity. Okay. Right? When we don't know who we are, we make things up. So you, if you tell your organization, this is our mission and our values – Yep. But you behave in a different way than that. Yep. If you tell your consumers and customers, we are this, but you actually act differently. Sure. And if people in the organization, their own sense of purpose and values doesn't have a place in yours, you are three times more likely to have people lie and withhold the truth. Interesting. Okay. Second one was um, accountability systems. So if people perceive you, the way you measure contribution, not reward it, not compensation, but the way you measure contribution to be unfair – or unjust, you are three and a half times more likely to have people lie or withhold the truth because then I have to lie to cover my mistakes or embellish my contributions to get your attention. Interesting. What about people taking credit for other people's work? Does that fall into that? That's unfair. Right. So when I, in, whatever I perceive to be unfair, okay, right? okay fair in enough. any way my contribution is bastardized okay. by the system, even when you tell me that I did something like, – like if you tell me I did something great when I know it sucked – that's unfair, right? Okay, interesting. Any lack of accuracy between how you measure my contribution and how I perceive that measurement system. Even if it's positive. That's, that's interesting, actually. Sure. How many, how many leaders blow smoke at people all the time instead of saying, you know what? This wasn't good. Do it again. We yeah. don't want to hold them accountable. We don't, want, we don't want to make them feel bad. Yeah, interesting. The, the third one was decision-making, governance. So when it's not clear who gets to make what decisions – and how those decisions are made when, it's, when governance is not transparent, you're four times more likely to have people withhold or distort the truth because the truth goes underground. 
Okay. Right. And so now there's no place. There's no place for the truth to be told. I have to rely on gossip and rumors and innuendo and palace intrigue to get my information. Interesting. And the last one, probably the most surprising, was border wars. All right. So when you have cross-functional rivalries, okay. like sales and marketing, sure. like finance and R and D, like HR and everybody. Okay. Um, sure. When there are unresolved conflicts between adjacent spaces, you are six times more likely to have people lie with all the truth because when, you, when I fragment the organization, I fragment the truth. I now have dueling truths, which means mine has to be right, which means I have to make yours wrong. Yeah, interesting. So, and the, and, and the scary part, Kevin, is it's cumulative. So if you have all four of those things yeah. present in your organization, that makes you 16 times more likely to find yourself on the cover of the New York Times in a store you don't want to be in. No, I uh, – yeah. 16 times. Wow. This – to me, sounds like an insane uphill battle that you guys are basically fighting. <laughs> uh, you'll pray for me, won't you? Yeah, <laughs> like, like, I, yeah, because I've been in. Clearly, you could tell I've been in the organizations where we've had huge problems to solve, and realistically, in majority of cases, I've ended up just leaving. Um, yeah. And, and I hope I didn't. I hope I didn't trigger your PTSD too much and tell no, you. No, no, no. It's good. It, it's therapeutic, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I I think the point I'm trying to get across to you is like trying to share my own experiences because I'm sure there's listeners out there that have gone through or will go through or have gone through the same kind of things, right? And they're thinking, how do I, as an employee, try to get some of this stuff either heard? and or changed or even considered at these organizations because sometimes I, I've worked at companies where the team that I worked with, we all gelled together. We loved working together. We would go for, we'd hang out outside of work hours and we would never invite the bosses. And sure. it was sad that we ended up all parting ways because the high level management could never get their act together to sort out the problems that we all knew and we're hoping that they would try to solve. So how do you, as an employee, basically get somebody like yourselves into the organization to, to at least try to fix these problems? Well, so, I mean, practically speaking, there's a, there's a great article in HBR on that very research called Four Ways Lying Becomes Normal at a Company. Okay. Um, put it in your show notes. They can just pat, you know, anonymously sure. send it to their bosses. Sure. Um, I, but I, but I, so here's, I, I know we've all heard the term psychological safety and is it safe to speak up and what does it take to create that safety? Sure. I honestly think more bosses than not, there are certainly the morons and sociopaths in the world sure. who do not want to hear the truth and do everything they can to barricade it. Sure. But I do believe, you know, I don't believe for a minute that 5,000 people woke up at Wells Fargo one day all at the same time and said, hey, here's an idea. Yeah. Okay. Um, so these, these things start the – the fungus in the cracks grows early on, and I think most leaders would want to know. Most sure. leaders don't want to be on the cover of the Wall Street Journal one day uh, in, in that kind of story. And so I do think I give my boss a shot. If I, if I see something um, that's amiss or weird, I, you know, I, no, you can't go in and go, what the hell is your problem? You, you have to sure. be – thoughtful about it, but let's assume you have some modicum of skill. I do think bosses want to hear the bad news. Okay. And because and most leaders that I talk to complain that nobody ever comes and tells me. Uh, no one ever okay. gets sure. All my information is filtered. All of it's spun. All of it's rose-colored. No one ever gives me the hard truth, and which, which I ask, to which I say, well, what are you doing to get help them? What, what conditions are you creating in which they, you expect it? The whole idea that uh, we have to create the psychological safety to help people speak up, I think it's bullcrap. I think if you're in the organization, you need to make it an expectation that I, as your boss, if, you, if there's something wrong, I want to be the first to know. Don't talk about me. Talk to me. Now, sure. if you respond poorly or defensively or dismissively or, or uh, disregard it, then shame on you. That, person, that talent should quit. You don't deserve them. And when it all blows up in your face, somebody should get to say, I told you so. Okay. Interesting. But I I've... don't think that's really – I don't think that's most bosses. I think most bosses are grateful to have somebody come to them and say, hey, you're about to go off a cliff here. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. The other thing that I've heard, and you could tell me your thoughts on this, is if 
your employees don't feel like they can honestly tell you the honest truth, good, bad, or other, you're a shitty boss. And, and I get that's maybe very harsh to say, but like, I don't know how else to say that and get the point across. So, well, and I, I think it's, it's half the truth, Kevin. Okay. It no. could be because you're a shitty boss. Okay. It could be. Okay. It could be. Okay. But, Fair but, enough. But, I, but, but a lot of times when I, when I hear from rank and file employees, you know, um, oh my gosh, you know, if you say that, you get fired around here. I'm like, well, tell me who's been fired. Tell me who, okay. who, who got thrown out in their ear for telling the truth. There's no examples. Okay. Interesting. So, it's so the self imposed narrative that okay. I couldn't possibly say that okay. is self imposed. I, I, it's uncomfortable for me. It's my boss. So you make up this narrative in your head of he's going to retaliate. He'll get, I'll get fired. Yes, there are cases, especially like in sexual harassment or stuff like that, where sure. people conceal stuff and, and retaliate. That's 10% of the time. Okay. I think the vast majority of the time, you know, put in a backbone and go say something. Sure. Until you have evidence that your boss is not interested in hearing what you have to say, until you have hardcore evidence. Now, what I say to bosses is you better let people know and, and in a believable way that when something is going wrong, you want them to tell you. When you're doing something that annoys them, and you are, you're a boss. It's your job to annoy people. Okay, um, interesting. They are, tell they are telling stories about you at dinner that night. You should figure out what the stories are and make sure they're the ones you want told. Yeah. Um, your enough. job is to make people uncomfortable. That's your job. But they should know why you're doing it, and they should be welcoming of it. If you're making them comfortable, you're not doing their job. If you're insulting them, you're not doing your job either. But if you have not taught them why you want them to come to you, how to come to you, and open up every meeting or end every meeting with, anybody got anything that, that you know, could, could put us all in the paper tomorrow that we want to talk about? And making sure you make it normal okay. to talk about the hard things, then you're not doing your job either. But because the boss is not doing that, don't conclude they don't want to hear it. Go yeah, offer it okay. to them. Fair find enough. a way to bring your voice um, and, uh, and tell the truth. Um, I think the problem that we've conflated, Kevin, is that today we, we have this horrible term called speak your truth. Okay. And the problem is what that means is, you know, speak truth to power. It means adopt the posture of a big middle finger. Yeah, right? okay. Fair enough. And, and that's not helpful. That's not helpful. So we have to, you know, learn to disaggregate your truth from the truth and tell it in a way that's respectful sure. but truthful. Um, and so do find your voice. Because if you don't speak up, you're colluding with it. Yeah, interesting. And, you, and you're part of the problem. Yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. So I, I want to dive a little bit more deeper into the stuff you guys actually do. Because how do you, you know, work with leadership and the organization and talk about maybe some of the high-level strategies that you guys do actually implement in a company? So um, the, you know, the, 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 the basis of any organization at, at, at its origin is how do you compete? How do you win? Why would somebody sure. pick you over somebody else? Sure. And so often in companies, that's missing, right? Sure. They have a mission statement, a value statement. They have objectives. They have you know, all the, the, the counterfeit strategies. But, but you, when you can't tell me who you are, you can't articulate this is why we want this consumer and not that one. This is why we charge this price and not that price. This is why people – this is what we're better at than anybody else okay. in this space. And so often the absence of that is what, was what creates lots of confusion. So we begin there to make sure the organization knows um, who you intend to be and how you intend to win. Then I have to look at your organization, right? So if, you're, um, if you say that you want to compete on innovation, okay. but the way you've organized innovative activities in your organization, you know, product development, marketing, uh, R&D, whatever, is, are underinvested in, disparate and not well-led, and look starved, then you can't tell me you compete on innovation, right? Yeah, interesting. Or you tell me you want to compete on price and cost leadership, but you have a bloated supply chain with lots of redundant activities where you're spending extra, extra, extra money on things you shouldn't be spending money on. So I have to make sure your organization is built to be who you say you want to be. And the last thing I have to do is make sure you have people who can lead, right? Because sure. great leadership isn't a generic thing. There's, a, there's leadership that your, or your context needs. And so I will examine deeply how your leaders are experienced, what they think, 
how they behave, how, how they're making choices, and how they're doing it in the context you're in. So when, I, when we work with leaders in an organization, our job is to shape their leadership around. So if this is what you say you need to compete and win, what leadership is required for that? Not okay. just people like him better or he, he increases your employee engagement scores or he gets better 360 scores or she, looks, she or he looks better, but really how are they leading successfully in that context? Um, and so you know, get real clear on what, how you're competing to win, get real clear on how you built the organization to do it, and get real clear uh, and do the deeper work on making sure you have leaders who can guide it. Sure. And we bring a solution set and a tool set that does all those things. Okay, interesting. So how do you, though, actually follow up and make sure this stuff is actually getting implemented? Do you guys have people that come to the the organization quarterly or a couple times a year? Or, well, or how so does that you, kind of those, work? The, the, those journeys are not two weeks, right? Those you journeys sure? are multi-year sometimes, and we stay the whole time. Um, and okay. if and when we create new organizations or create new solutions, we will often go uh, become part of the implementation at least the uh, early months okay. to make sure it sticks, to make sure it's not going into heart failure. And we create m metrics, right? So we okay. create here's the measurement system that would tell you if the change is sticking or not. You actually have to go and ask people, and 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 collect data to find out is this doing what we said it was going to do, okay. or or is it need to be corrected or adjusted. So we make sure organizations measure, um, and and one of the major challenges in any change is consequence management, right? Sure. So the minute people start not adhering to the the changes you've committed to, whether that's because they can't or they won't, sure, um, you, there needs to be consequences, right? If otherwise, the minute there's no consequences, you're announcing this is a volunteer program. Yeah, interesting. And and so why wouldn't I regress? Why would I bother going through the change of this if it's clear? You don't intend to make it stick. Um, the only people who like change are wet babies. Fair uh, after that, <laughs> expect resistance. Expect yeah. people to not love it. Even if it's change they asked for, it's still going to be hard. So if you're not willing to, to go the distance with them to help them succeed through the change, then of course they're going to regress back to what they knew. Yeah. No, that's, that's actually really quite interesting. So do, what is your thoughts then on – incentives if people meet um the, the change or like the requirements of change right like do you find that raises or promotions or bonuses in some way actually help do they hinder does it not really matter does it really depend on the person you know it's, it's, it's such an interesting question kevin i think i think incentive systems can help okay reinforce behaviors you want they're not going to do it all right people do not change for money Sure. Um, or they might for now, a short period of time, in my experience. Right. But what they also do for a short period of time is not change if you're, not, if you're paying them to do otherwise. So you, okay. if you're paying people for individual work but ask them to collaborate, you can bet they're not going to collaborate. Right? So if, you're, if your incentive systems contradict the behaviors I see. you're looking for, then you have a problem. Right? Sure. You ha so the, the incentive system has to, at, at the very least, be aligned with the direction you're headed to. Um, and certainly if it's reinforcing that um, – or encouraging of that direction, you, you might get there a little faster, as long as everything else is in place to work. Um, if you only do it with incentives, you, it won't, it, it will be, to your point, it'll be short-lived at best. Interesting. So I'm, I'm curious, though, to get your thoughts on where do you kind of see the different age groups? Because do you have to tailor the programs and, and what you guys are implementing similar or different or 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 how does that work depending on you know the different generations you know i think i think um one of my books 10 years ago was about generational differences it was before it was about millennials before okay. we had, before we actually called them millennials it was sure called leadership divided okay. and i wanted to study the differences between incumbent leaders and emerging leaders okay. to see what was all this hubbub about these generational differences i think we way overblow them okay. i certainly think that the up-and-coming gen z generation is very different than the millennials were. We sure. thought that would be the same and they're not. I think one of the dangerous things about Gen Zers is how, how ill-prepared they are for the workplace. Agreed. We have trained sure. them that what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. We have not prepared them to be resilient. We've, we've tried to help them avoid every struggle possible. We've taught them the world is good and evil only. 
So I think they're going to bring a very, um, uh, they're going to struggle to be accountable. They're going to struggle to be resilient. Um, that's important. But I do think that the, the emphasis we place on major generational differences is way, is way overblown. Okay. Um, the issue isn't, are you an emerging or an incumbent leader? The issue is, which are you when? There are days I'm the emerging leader. Okay. Right? So, so the issue is, do, do you know how to build relationships with people who are different than you? Whether sure. it's an age difference or a cultural difference or a gender difference. Sure. Um, that's, if this is, it's not a problem of demographic or yeah, the year you were born. It's a problem of relationship. I think we have to solve it at the relational level, not at the age difference level. I wrote an article once that opened up with the words entitled, um, lazy, not hardworking, uh, overly social, uh, and feedback averse. Okay. Uh, and I said, sounds like the words we used to uh, describe every millennial, right? Yep. Those words opened up a 1969 Life magazine article about boomers. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That was going to be my next point. It's like, uh, well, I'm just a millennial, um, 36. So for me, I love the fact that you're basically written off and the bar is so low for me, right, to a lot of people. But it's like I also see it as it literally if you just like pick the bar off the ground, people are like, good job. And if you if you do better than that, people are like blown away, right? So I think it's been great for me. But the, the thing that I'm getting at is I think there's in every generation since the beginning of mankind, and we we could I don't want to argue when that is because of the connotations with that, but like it 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 there's been people that have been extremely motivated and completely lazy and everywhere in between, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yes, you were the generation for everybody who everybody got a, for which everybody got a trophy for participating. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that all of you came into the workplace expecting that. Yes, right? and some did. It's a, gross very general, much so. it's a gross generalization. Yeah. I've yeah. seen plenty of high-achieving millennials, and I've seen plenty of millennials who don't want anything sure. out of life. And I would say that about my grandparents' generation, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I think the flavor of that might, may alter, but it's still ice cream. Sure. And I think when we make it about your birth year, I mean, too many people spend all this money and time, how do we market to millennials? You know, it has to be digital, it has to be on video, it has to be on an app. Well, maybe, maybe not. Sure. Um, now it's how we market to Gen Zers because now they're in their mid-20s and they're becoming consumers. Right. I think um, understanding the conditions in which they were raised, how they're va- – I mean, the millennials are one of the most socially justice-minded generations in history. Sure. Let's talk about that. Sure. Right? They're far and, – and talk about feedback stronger. Millennials that I know can't get enough feedback. Yeah. Uh, and the more negative, the better. Yeah. The, the more the more you come out of you, boomers, you have to on, on eggshells. You gotta you gotta walk to give them negative feedback. So let's talk about the positive things millennials can teach us. Um, so I, I in many organizations I point at millennials and said at a classroom I said go over to those boomers there and teach them how to take feedback. Interesting. How does that go? It's great. <laughs> and then I've said to them boomers go teach those millennials how to be disappointed and how they make budgets. Yeah. Interesting. It's, I mean, it's, it's, so it's when are you the learner, when are you the teacher? It doesn't matter which generation you're born in. Just build a relationship that, that allows it. Yeah. And, and yeah, but that's got to be in the minority mindset in a lot of leaders. Or, or is that not fair to say at all? Uh, yeah, I think, I think I, you're absolutely right, Kevin. It's counterintuitive. Okay, right? sure. But here, here the, the, at the real heart of the war is what we call the war between legacy and potential. Right, sure. your legacy I see as threatening my potential because you're sticking around too long. Okay, and and as a as a more experienced worker, I see your potential threatening my legacy. I my okay. I fear obsolescence. You fear being muted. Okay, but like but why can't the reality we work together? Is, if we work together, my legacy is insured in your potential. Yeah, and your potential is fulfilled because I can I can help you along. I can teach you. Agreed. Right? Okay, but then so how, it, yeah. Okay, keep going. But, Sorry, but you first have to discover that to sure. realize. Oh my gosh, my fear of obsolescence is if I give if I if I take myself out of the game, I became far less obsolete and far more relevant. Um, if I make sure that the work I've done, the things live on in this generation. But isn't that outside of the workplace? Isn't that how human beings have basically survived for? generations is by passing information along and learning from each other but it seems like we've forgotten that 
the second you move it into the office walls. Do you agree with that? Well, I think every company complains these days about tribal knowledge leaving, where they haven't codified their knowledge and the tribal knowledge goes when generations retire. Um, I think, I think the, the challenge we have today is we've become so divided. We have okay. so many competing echo chambers okay. that the, the batons are only being passed within the echo chamber. We have to pass them across these divides. Okay. That's when this will really be great. And in the workplace, you know, we, all, we tried false ment- you know, mentoring, reverse mentoring. That all failed because you can't contrive that stuff. Okay. But I do think um, your peers and even younger than your peers, the Gen Xers, are hungry for mentors, real mentors. Sure. Not mentors that want to clone themselves in you, but mentors that want to invest in you. Um, and I think you know, people in my peer group, if we're honest, are eager to learn from you. I, you know, there's, I, listen, who's my help desk? My 27-year-old son. Sure. Uh, you know, when I need an app installed, when I need a, you know, to fix something on social media, I'm like, hey, Matthew, can you do this for me? Uh, he's sure. my help, you know, because it, it's natural to him. I don't even think about that stuff. So gotcha. we have to be willing to reach across those divides, not just generational ones, but ideological ones, philosophical ones, cultural ones. And, and, and move that tribal knowledge around as, in as many directions as we can. And yes, for generations, that is how we did it. Um, the, the irony to me, Kevin, is that now we have the luxury of passing that information in so many ways available to us. Why would we want to hoard it? Why would we not want to? I mean, think about how much better we all get if we move that knowledge and insight in every direction we can move it. No, I, I 100% agree with you, man. But Sadly, we're out of time, so let's close <laughs> with mentioning where people can get more information about you guys and any other links you want to mention. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, if, if this is an interesting conversation, you want to keep it up, come visit us at Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. Just launched a brand new website with all kinds of cool new features on it, cool. all kinds of new content. It's an award-winning website for the content we have. We have a free ebook for you, too, so if you want to learn more about Within Between Among, our playbook for that is at navalent.com slash transformation. Um, we also have a free quarterly magazine uh, on really cool stuff about in- innovation and teams and uh, uh, you know, working together and leadership. Uh, you can sign up and get that magazine free once a quarter. You can also find me at Twitter at, at Ron Carucci and on LinkedIn as well. So stay in touch. Perfect, Ron. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time of your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Have a good rest of your day, man. Kevin, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.